Well, it was one of my first dates with Alex, and something you guys might know might not know about me is that I exceedingly enjoy gummies, gummy worms, uh, gummy bears. My tummy loves the gummy, and so it's one of our first. Um, dates, and we're going to go to a movie, but beforehand, we kind of stop over at this like premium candy store, and they didn't just have a gummy snake, they had like a gummy python. Like it, this gummy had some girth, all right? It was like a five-pound gummy anaconda, and um, similar to how snakes like slowly ingest entire objects that are far too big for their stomachs, so I swallowed this entire serpent and immediately I felt amazing. I kind of had like this, this sugar high, and then about five minutes into the movie, I got, you guys, so sleepy. Um, like, and you know, it's our first date, so I can't cash out five minutes into the, in the date in the movie, and so I prop my arms on the armrest, and I'm holding my eyelids open, just kind of like going in and out of consciousness. Why, why am I sharing that? Because in today's passage, we're told six times to stay awake. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. All of us know what it's like to be in a battle to stay awake. You know, if it's been working on a project or writing a paper or just maybe sitting in the sermon, you know what it's like to have to fight to stay awake. And that's the battle that the Lord Jesus himself is enlisting you and I into this morning. It's Mark chapter 13, and this is what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse, and it's widely considered one of the most, if not the most, challenging chapter in all of the New Testament. It's challenging because in Mark 13, Jesus is using Old Testament prophecies to predict both the end of the temple and the end of time, and it's not always clear which verse is referring to which event. And so there is, of course, tons of debate surrounding this chapter, but I think Mark actually gives us an internal clue about when Jesus is talking about the temple and when he's talking about the end of time. As best as I can discern it, when Jesus says the phrase, these days or these things, He's talking about the destruction of the temple. And when he says those days or that day, he's talking about the end of the world. And I think we can actually see the shift in verses 30 and 32. This is just set up for once we get in. In verses 30, Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all what? Come on now. These things take place. That's clearly a reference to the destruction of the temple. But then in verse 32, but concerning what? That day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's a clear reference to the end of time. So regardless of how you slice and dice each verse here, the point of chapter 13 is that the end is coming, y'all. And we need to stay spiritually awake. And in chapter 13, Jesus tells us how to stay spiritually awake. So you guys ready to dig in? I'm not convinced. Are you ready to dig in God's word today? Okay, 
Let's go, guys. Let's lean in. Verse 13, beginning in verse 1. As he came, that's Jesus, out of the temple. No, Jesus will not come back to the temple again. God himself, in verse 1, the one for whom the temple was built, has left the building. He came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I I think this is funny because Jesus has just violently cleansed and cursed the temple a few days ago. Then he comes back to the temple and has a standoff with the Sanhedrin where he says, fine, you want the temple? You love the temple? You can have the temple, but you're throwing away the cornerstone. And they aren't even down the front steps before one of the disciples, we all know it was Peter, says, man, have you guys seen this temple? Like Jesus, have you, what a beaut. And Jesus is like, come on, man, read the room. It's tone deaf, but... It's true, you guys, the temple was wonderful. It was one of the wonders of the Roman world. At this point, it had been under construction by King Herod for 46 years. Located way up on Mount Moriah, it was made by pure white marble, and it was plated with silver and gold. And it was massive. It was 35 acres of enclosed temple. That's the size of U.S. Bank Stadium. So you just can't over, for the ancient world, like you can't overstate how glorious this temple was. And you also can't overstate how central it was to God's people. Their lives revolved around the temple. They visited it at least once, often twice a day. They would sing about it. They would pray towards it. Um, If you spoke against it, you said something negative about the temple, that was considered blasphemy. The point is their entire existence, their entire life was about the temple because God was about the temple, right? Verse 2, and Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In a single sentence, the disciples go from being dazzled by the temple too dizzied by what Jesus just said. Jesus, who knew everything and who was right about everything so far, just said that this temple is going to be destroyed. And because he was truth in the skin, he was right. In the year 70, the Roman army under a man named Titus sieged Jerusalem, set fire to the whole city, including the temple complex. And the fires were so intense that it melted all the gold and silver plates on the temple, and liquid gold and silver seeped into the cracks of the foundation, and Titus, not willing to leave any gold and silver behind, ordered that every single stone be pulled apart. And verse 2 was fulfilled. There was not left a single stone together. But that tragic night is still about 37 years away at this point. So now Jesus, because he cares for his people, uh, tells his disciples what to expect. That's in verse 3. Verse 3, it says this. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's about 150 feet higher than the temple. So they're looking down on the temple now. Opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will, what does that say? 
these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will lead many astray. All sorts of self-proclaiming messiahs popped up right after Jesus. We see two in the New Testament, Thaddeus in Acts 5.36 and Judas the Galilean in Acts 5.37. Verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famine. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus tells the disciples, okay, you're going to be hearing about some wars. And there was at least one war happening every year between Jesus' death and the destruction of the temple. And you're going to be hearing about earthquakes, most popularly documented the one that happened on February 5th, 8062, which caused the volcanic eruption that then destroyed the entire city of Pompeii. Jesus says, these things are going to be happening, and when they start to happen, don't think it's the end of the world. It's just the beginning of birth pains. Verse 9, but be on guard or stay awake. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and then they will bring you to trial and deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Of course, we can see this paragraph play out verbatim in the book of Acts as the disciples are delivered to the councils and beaten in synagogues and stand before governors and eventually handed over to death. Everyone except Judas uh, endured to the end by God's grace. Everyone was brutally martyred except John, who was boiled alive in oil and then exiled to the island of Patmos. So look down to verse 28 because this is the, the only other place where Jesus uses the phrase, these things. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts on its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So what does Jesus want them to know once the fires are lit And everything starts burning down. Look at at the end of verse 29. Know that he is near at the very gates. In other words, God is at the gates. So let the gates burn. You guys, the raw reality is that everything outside of Jesus, like the temple, will one day be destroyed. Your house will be bulldozed one day. Your money will be spent 
All of it. Your career will end. It will probably end in an anticlimactic, maybe lame cake kind of way. And this church will close. Do you guys know that? I mean, we know that, right? Vertical church will one day close. Every church the Apostle Paul planted closed. Every church the apostles planted closed. For 2,000 years, there's been no church that has just gone on forever. It's not how it works. God gives every church a season of life. Five years, 10 years, God willing, maybe 100 years where we plant and we water and we build and we multiply and then we die. Why? So that in 100 years, no one will be talking about vertical church, but God willing, thousands will be talking about Jesus Christ because of what happened here. Listen, guys, we'll go sideways if we act like this thing is supposed to last forever. This is not supposed to last forever. We got a season. And by God's kindness, we get a a slice of a season where we are going to run our race with endurance. Then we're going to entrust our faith to the next generation. And then vertical church will gloriously, worshipfully, and calmly die. And Jesus says, when that's happened, listen, it's okay. God is at the gates. He is near. Let me ask you, what does your life revolve around that's not named Jesus? What are you building and treating like it's supposed to last forever? Jesus is warning you today in Mark chapter 13, that thing's going to be destroyed. Everything that's not named Jesus will be destroyed, and when it does, just watch it burn. Why? Because in suffering, Jesus moves closer than your skin. He says, I am near the brokenhearted. And we're all tempted to make our lives revolve around things that in final analysis won't last, won't matter. And Jesus says, just be on guard. Wake up. Stay alert. And take heart. Yeah, the temple is going to be destroyed, but I'm building a new one. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, your body is going to go in the ground, but I'm going to resurrect it and glorify it so that it can live forever with me. Yeah, your house will be bulldozed, but I will come back and take you to be with me that where I am, there you may also be. Yes, all your money will one day carry no value, but in the coming ages, I will show the immeasurable riches of grace in my kindness towards you. Because we live in a fallen world, suffering is coming for all of us, guys, all of us. Death and destruction is coming for all of us. And when the fires are set, just watch it burn. And know that God is at the gate, replacing our little temporary temples with himself. What can we learn as the disciples are warned that the the destruction of the temple is coming? We can learn that everything that's not named Jesus is going to be burned up. But Jesus is going to lean in in that moment and preserve us all. 
So these prophecies now predict double fulfillments. Look at verse 14. Now we see Jesus start talking about those days or that day. And there's an immediate fulfillment, most likely AD 70, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment on the end of time. Verse 14, you guys still with me? Okay, let's go in. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation. This term comes from Daniel chapter 9 and 11, which prophesied a coming figure who would desecrate the temple with an abomination so detestable that God's people would have to abandon the temple, leaving it in desolation, an abomination of desolation. And this happened 150 years before Jesus, when King Antiochus Epaphanes conquered the temple, went into the Holy of Holies, erected a a statue of Zeus, and turned the temple chambers into a giant orgy. And he went back into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar to Zeus. So when Jesus says the abomination of desolation, the disciples know exactly what he's talking about, but here he's inferring that something like that, but way worse, is going to happen at the end of time. See it. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Now listen to 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Of course, people debate this, but the general consensus is that one day Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed and the man of lawlessness, or as 1 John 2 calls him, the Antichrist, will position himself as God and thousands upon thousands will believe him and worship him as such. Let the reader understand. That means learn to look for. Learn what to look for. Jesus tells us in verse 15, here's what to look for, guys. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, not enter his house to take anything out, And let the one who's in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. All the Minnesotans said amen. Verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Again, the first fulfillment of these verses happened in AD 70. Just listen to this. Josephus gives us an eyewitness account, and it almost sounds verbatim to what Jesus prophesied. Josephus writes, quote, The roofs were thronged with famine women with babies in arms, and the, allies, and the alleys with corpses of the elderly. Children and young people Swollen from starvation, roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces, 
and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. There was no lamenting or wailing because famine had strangled their emotions. Jerusalem could not bury all the bodies, so they were flung over the wall. The silence was broken only by the laughter of robbers stripping the bodies, end quote. Verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Guys, the first thing that we should be looking for is this. Things are going to go from bad to worse. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Things are going to go from bad to worse. That's what's going to happen. I don't know why the church in America, why do we keep acting like things are going to get better? Uh, Why do we keep being surprised when we meet fiery trials of various kinds as though something strange were happening to us? Yes, Jesus will build his church. Yes, the gospel is going to keep gaining ground. But that has always happened through the blood of martyrs. Right? That's never happened with the church getting comfy with the culture. Christians have always been the ones marginalized, pushed to the corners, persecuted. And here in the West, we have had a 200-year gift from God where the church experienced peace and prosperity like no church before us. But we can all feel those days coming to an end, can't we? We know those days are limited, and we're not naive to what waits us. Death awaits persecution awaits, like real, not like the fake American Christian persecution complex, like, you know, I'm not allowed to say Merry Christmas. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real persecution. It's coming for us, you guys. And as those days near, Jesus doesn't want us to wring our hands in worry. He wants us to wake up and to stay alert and endure to the end. So so we stay awake by knowing, hey, culturally speaking, things are going to go from bad to way, 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 way worse. But now look at verse 21 to see the next thing we're supposed to look for. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, Jesus says, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. Stay awake, because I've told you these things beforehand. The second thing you and I need to learn to look for, you guys, is false teaching. False teaching. As we approach the end, we need to know and we need to guard against false teaching teaching. But first, let's differentiate between false teaching and flawed teaching. Some of us who are most passionate about truth can sometimes walking, walk around just launching the label of false teacher to not false teachers, just flawed ones. See, a flawed teacher is someone who loves Jesus, is trying to preach the gospel, and just gets some things wrong. I'm a flawed teacher. And everyone who's teaching is a flawed teacher. When we get flawed, uh, when flawed teachers get things wrong, you should be like Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18, who took Apollos aside and, quote, explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
And may God give us the humility to receive that and say, you're right, you're right. I'm going to correct that. That's a flawed teacher. Here, Jesus is talking about a false teacher, and that's a very different thing. A false teacher teaches a teaching that if you believe it, you leave Jesus. Okay? That's the distinction. Let me say it again. A false teacher teaches a teaching that if you receive it and believe it, you actually leave Jesus. Look at verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. Be ready for that. To do what? Come on, nice and loud. To lead astray. Some of the most common false teachings that I see today is, of course, the prosperity gospel. Jesus has come to deliver you from poverty and pain and give you prosperity and pleasure. Of course, there's the uplifting and encouraging gospel. Jesus has come to deliver you from a bad day and give you hope for a brighter future tomorrow. There's the trendy gospel. Jesus has, uh, has come to deliver you from just being uncool and give you a sanctified but sexy Christian subculture where you can finally fit in. And these are false teachings because they don't lead you to Jesus. Guys, that's the thing. The, the, the prosperity gospel promises prosperity. The encouraging gospel promises encouragement. The trendy gospel promises for you to be trendy and cool. And if the thing that the teaching promises is not named Jesus, it's a false teaching and you should run. The true gospel is Jesus has come to deliver you from sin and death and give you himself, Jesus. So vertical, I'm just telling you right now, you need to be on guard. Galatians 1.8 says, if anyone comes to you proclaiming a gospel, listen, if anyone, including a guy named Chris Osmus, comes to you proclaiming a different gospel, let him be accursed. We need to be alert Pastors and elders, we need to be alert, looking out for any gospel that promises something that's not named Jesus. Stay awake, church family. Thankfully, God will protect his elect. As verse 22 says, it's not possible for God's chosen people to ultimately be led away by false teaching. Praise God. His keeping grace will protect us as we stay awake. Now look down at verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put on its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when all these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So we've already learned that Jesus here is referring to the end of the temple. But now look at verse 31 because Jesus zooms out and gives us an eternal promises, uh, an eternal promise for all believers in every age. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If you're an Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament well, you know Jesus is echoing Isaiah 40 verse 8. We say it all the time. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of God will stand forever. How audacious of Jesus. Jesus just declared, hey, God's words are my words, 
and my words are God's words, and when all of this stuff happens, and it feels like heaven and earth is passing away, don't worry, my words won't pass away. God's words won't pass away. Guys, the second way we need to stay awake is to lean on God's word. I won't belabor this point, but every object in your life is going to pass away. In this entropic environment, our clothes are fading. Our phones are becoming obsolete. Sadly, most of our bodies have already hit peak performance and already are beginning to power down. From sunup to sundown, everything you touch is a thing that's going to pass away. Listen, except for this. This right here, Jesus says, hey, this thing is going to last forever. This thing isn't going anywhere. God's words, my words, are going to ring true. In fact, they're going to ring truer as time goes on. Guys, this is the only object you own that will not pass away, so lean on it come hell or high water. This thing right here, read it every day. Treasure it up in your heart. Memorize it in your mind because the end is coming and suffering is coming. And when it comes and the job passes away, when it comes and your spouse passes away, when it comes and your child passes away, the way Jesus will carry you and the way he will care for you is with his words. So we lean in and we learn the Holy Scriptures as the one thing in our life, the one thing we own that isn't going anywhere. That's how we stay awake. Every morning, wake up and stay awake. Yeah? So here's the question everyone's asking, though. Yeah, but when? We all know he's coming back. When will he come back? Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, let's see if Jesus is getting his point across. What I say to you, I say to you all, what? Stay awake. The third way Jesus tells us to stay awake is to live with a spiritual alertness. Guys, a common thread throughout the entire New Testament is to live each day like Jesus is coming back. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert. Hebrews 10, 24 says, We should meet together and encourage one another, for the day is drawing near. The second to the last verse of the entire Bible is Jesus saying, surely I am coming soon. So let me just ask, if Jesus were coming back on Friday, what would you do? I think we'd be pretty bold with our faith. And I think we'd be freaky generous and free with our money. And I think we would be so intentional with our time. If Jesus were coming back on Friday, what would you not do? 
I don't think we'd drone on our phones for long. I don't think we'd wander back into that porn site. I don't think we'd do another Netflix binge. How much of our lives reveal that we simply don't believe Jesus is actually coming back soon? You want to go to the next place with the Lord? You want to make your life count? You want to leave an impression on your friends and those around you? Just live every week like Jesus is coming back on Friday. One of these weeks you'll be right, and you'll be eternally grateful that you were. Stay awake by living with spiritual alertness. Today might be your last day. Tomorrow might be our first day. So what are you stressing out about again? But I saved the best for last. Look back up to verse 24. This right here is the meat and cheese, guys. Verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man. The fourth way we stay awake is we long for the return of Christ. Look at verse 26. And they will see. So guys, Jesus is coming back visibly. When he comes back, it's not going to be like, look in the sky, is that a plane? No, it's Jesus. Wow. That's not what it's going to be like. Revelation 19.11 says heaven will simply open. So you see, everything you and I interact with right now are mere shadows and reflections of the most real reality, the glory of God. And on that day, like a curtain being thrown open, the reality we live in every day will instantly disappear. And the one thing you will see, the only thing you will see, is Jesus himself. And at that moment, every eye will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 26 again. Then they will see the Son of Man coming. Jesus is coming back physically. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a hologram like what they're trying to do to Tupac. It was a real bodily resurrection. He ate fish. You could put your finger in his nail-pierced hands. And what will stun you and I most when we see Jesus is that he's not just a concept. He's not a, a theology, theological position. He is a, a real person with skin and hair and a smile larger than life. And even after all your sin and suffering, he will say, come here, and you will be physically embraced by God himself. Like God in Jesus has arms, and those arms aren't going to stiff arm you. They're going to swing around you and give you the warmest, richest hug. And you'll be crying, at least I'll be crying, and I'm guessing he'll be crying. And in that moment, you will know exactly what the gospel accomplished. Reconciliation with God. Verse 26, they'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus is coming in power and glory. 
In his first coming, his glory was concealed, not at the second one. His glory will be revealed. Revelation 20, 11 says, Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. When you see him, everything will incinerate into immediate irrelevance and every living creature will fall either in worship or in judgment. And at that moment, you won't be thinking about you or your accomplishments, or your followers, or your friends, or your loved ones, the sole reality that will consume your mind will be the power and the glory of Christ. And if as I'm talking, you're thinking, I'm actually, dude, I'm actually terrified for that day. Then look at verse 27. That's why Jesus gave us 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Four winds and ends of the earth, ends of heaven. It's just a a Hebrew way of saying Jesus is going to gather every single one of his children from every generation, from every corner of the world, and that includes you. Jesus is coming for you. Don't be afraid of the word elect there in verse 27. Yes, it raises unanswerable questions, but it contains unspeakable comfort. It means Jesus is coming for you, not because you did anything, but solely because he set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. How do I know that? Because you're here today. He's wooing you and winning you back to himself. God brought you here today to say, I love you with a saving, electing love. So here's how I picture verse 27 going down. Jesus is going to come and say to some angel, okay, now I want you to go get my Abby. She's been waiting for this her whole life. Angel goes. I'll say to another angel, okay, go get Tyler. He thinks he's too sinful for me. Man, is he going to be surprised. And then Jesus will send an angel for you. Yes, I'm talking to each one of you. And you'll probably say, there must be a mistake. I never figured it out. I never reached my spiritual potential. I never became holy. I never kicked that sin And maybe the angel will then pull out verse 27 and say, "Uh, Sir or ma'am, I wasn't sent for the perfect. I was sent for the elect. Simply those the king chose to save long, long, long time ago. And I'm here to inform you that's you. You are his because he chose you. You are saved because he saved you. And now you can come because he has sent for you. In 1746, the greatest theologian this world has ever known, Jonathan Edwards, wrote this. Quote, in that resurrection morning, when the Son of Righteousness shall appear in the heavens, shining in all brightness and glory, he will come as a groom. And at that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, shall the whole elect church complete down to every individual member 
shall ascend up to meet the Lord in the air. Then the groom will appear in all of his glory without any veil, and then the saints shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father and at the right hand of their Redeemer. Then will come the time when Christ will sweetly invite his spouse to enter in with him into the palace of his glory, which he has been preparing for her from the foundation of the world. And he shall, as it were, take her by the hand and lead her with him. And this glorious groom and this bride shall ascend up together into the heaven of heavens. And the whole multitude of glorious angels will be waiting for them. And he and his bride shall, in their united glory and joy, present themselves together before the Father. And Christ shall say, Here we are. I and the children which you have given me. And they both together shall receive the Father's blessing and shall forever rejoice together in consummate, uninterrupted, unchanging, everlasting glory in the love of God.